We're going to be reading from Mark 11 today again, Mark 11, starting at verse 12 and actually going to read just through verse 20. We'll take verses 21 through 25 next week, Mark 12, 1 through 20, or excuse me, 12 through 20. I do have a plan for Mark. Uh, the goal in 2020 is to get through Mark Mark 13. Now, that's not going to take every Sunday that we have left. Don't worry. Um, that's about maybe eight to ten more sermons, and we'll spread that out throughout the year uh, after Easter and into the fall. Uh, and then if my math serves me correctly and my counting, I should say, serves me correctly, we'll pick up at Mark 14 at the beginning of 2021, Lord willing, of course, and... Um, and that should run us right perfectly through Easter. So uh, we'll see if that works out or not. But that is, that I do have a plan um, and just want you to know that. Anyway, Mark 11, uh, 12 through 20 is going to be our text this morning. And uh, why don't we stand uh, for the reading of God's Word today? Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this. And began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this morning uh, under the teaching of Your Word. And Lord God, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit and Your grace and abundance upon us through Your Word. Lord, be with me as I preach. Help me to handle the Word of truth faithfully uh, and in a manner that is befitting of my calling. And Lord, be with us as we listen. Help us to listen carefully. Help us to listen well. And Lord, we pray that You would take Your truth and You would fashion and form us more and more to the image of Christ by it. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> many of us, many of us who, uh, who hunt deer have gotten into the habit and practice the last 10, 15 years or so of of putting out trail cameras in the summer and fall uh, to see, uh, you know, what kind, of, what kind of deer are around. 
Uh, and I, th- I always think it's fun, you know, you get, you get a bunch of pictures of a buck maybe in the summer, in the fall, and, and all you have are pictures, right? You, just, you get pictures, you know that this buck exists, uh, and then maybe you go out hunting and you actually, you see the buck on the hoof that you have pictures of, and, and I always think that's exciting, and it always kind of helps you understand the deer. Sometimes you, you think, oh, that deer's bigger than I thought, or that deer's smaller than I thought, or that deer is even uglier than I thought, or whatever, you know? Um, but you see the deer on the hoof, and it, it kind of it, it puts things in perspective, and I always enjoy that. Oh, that's the deer I have pictures of. That's, that's what it looks like in action. Well, in the Bible, we, we see pictures of something that we might call dead religion. Dead religion. We, we see a picture of it uh, in 2 Timothy 3.5, for instance. Here the apostle Uh, Paul talks about people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power by the way they continue on in sin. So so from afar, they they look godly, but when you get close to them, their life is just full of sin, and they deny the power of the gospel to transform. Their religion is dead. We see a picture of dead religion in James 2. 14 through 17, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And then James says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We see a picture of dead religion again in Revelation 3. Here Jesus is speaking to the church in Sardis, and this is what he says to them. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are, in fact, dead. And so throughout Scripture, we see, we see pictures of what can be called dead or, or hypocritical is another word we could use, dead or hypocritical religion. And this refers to people who, who honor the Lord with their lips and who put on a pretty good religious show but deny the Lord in their heart and by their actions. Now, what does this have to do with our text this morning? Well, in our text this morning... We see dead religion on the hoof. In our text this morning, we see dead religion in action. If those other texts, like pictures on a trail camera, tell us that dead religion exists, it is something. This morning, we're we're sitting in the tree stand, and, and dead religion comes walking right beneath our tree for us to see and to assess with our own eyes. That's probably only an introduction that could take place in classes northern Michigan, but that's, that's where we are. Our text begins with a rather strange story uh, about a fig tree. We read, starting at verse 12, the next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, the time for figs is August, September, and October, kind of like our time for apples. Uh, Jesus here, Mark here, is in the week of Passover, 
And so that would put us in late March or early April, several months before fig season uh, would be in full swing. Scholars note, however, that, uh, that there is often a few small early figs. They're rare, they're not common, but, but they do exist. These, these small early figs that ripen with the leaves in the spring, they're kind of a delicacy, kind of a treat. If you find them, you really found something. And in all likelihood, Jesus, seeing the leaves on the tree, is hoping to find a few of these early figs. So he he sees the leaves on this tree from afar, and he thinks, there's potential there. If I'm going to find these early figs on any tree, I'm going to find them on that tree, which is in leaf. And so he goes to investigate. Of course, he he finds none, right? It turns out that this, this fig tree is all leaf and no fruit, Now, I don't think that surprised anyone. I don't even think it surprised Jesus. It wasn't the season for figs. Yet what Jesus does next is surprising. Verse 14, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the tree for having no fruit out of season. Now, Jesus' reaction here, it it has bothered liberal scholars for ages. I should make a caveat that everything in the Bible has bothered liberal scholars for ages. But uh, just listen to what some of them have said about it. One has said, this was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. I did not know that things like trees could be morally capable of anything. Another has said, it's a tale of miraculous power, wasted in the service of ill temper. Still another has said, this story just doesn't seem worthy of Jesus. This has has bothered people. We have to understand what's going on here. We have to understand what's going on here. Jesus is, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 14, and the disciples heard it. That's not a throwaway phrase. That's not an accident. Jesus meant for the disciples to see and to hear this. And what this is, what this whole episode is, is an enacted parable which finds its significance and meaning in the next story. It finds its significance and meaning in what happens in the temple. Notice how Mark returns to the fig tree in verse 20. That's why I wanted to read to verse 20. In verse 20 we read, In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter's going to comment on it, and that's going to lead to Jesus teaching his disciples on prayer. And we're going to talk about prayer next week. But, but, but he, Mark returns to the story of the fig tree. And he does, this, he does this sort of thing often in his gospel. He inserts a story within a story. He kind of makes Oreos out of stories, or maybe in this case it's a Fig Newton, right? Uh, We're dealing with a fig tree. But he inserts a story within a story. Um, Mark, I can't can't not laugh, Mark. I say Fig Newton and I think of you singing the Fig Newton song, but uh, that was a bad move for me. Anyway, someone, you should ask Mark to do that after church. Um, 
But, but he, he inserts a story within a story. We've seen it before. The story of Jairus is a story. There's a story within a story. Jesus sends out the 12, and he puts the story of John the Baptist beheading in the middle of it. And that's simply to show us that, that being sent out as a disciple of Jesus is dangerous, right? And it could very well cost you your life. So, so he's making a point whenever he, whenever he does this. And whenever he does this, he's telling us that these stories, these stories that are sandwiched with each other, they... They cannot be understood apart from each other, okay? The story of the fig tree needs to be understood in light of the clearing of the temple. And the clearing of the temple needs to be understood in light of the fig tree. These stories, they, they go together. You cannot interpret them and understand them independently. And it is appropriate that we would put a fig tree with Jerusalem and the people of Israel in the temple, because throughout the Old Testament, the prophets often likened Israel to a fig tree. And the prophets often spoke about Israel's relationship with God in light of the fig tree. Okay, if, you, if you'd go to the prophets, you'll see it in Jeremiah, you'll see it in Hosea, you'll see it in Micah. Um, when God was pleased with Israel, the prophets likened it to finding figs on the tree. And when God was displeased with Israel, the prophets likened it to God's not being able to find any figs on the tree. I'll just read two, two passages. Uh, Jeremiah 8 is also relevant here. Not going to read that, but I would suggest maybe you read that after church during lunch or something. Very relevant to what's going on here. We hear echoes of it in our text. But, but Hosea 9.10 is one place we see this. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Micah 7, 1, especially relevant, this is what Micah says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The prophet Micah there is searching for righteousness in Israel. And as he searches for righteousness in Israel, he compares himself to one looking for first ripe figs and not being able to find any. And now Mark 11, what happens? Jesus Jesus goes looking for first ripe figs and he doesn't find any. And as this happens, we, we hear echoes. We hear echoes of Micah's prophecy. And we also, as I said, hear echoes of Hosea and echoes of Jeremiah 8. And if you read that, you'll hear echoes of all of that here. So Jesus' cursing of, of the fig tree, it cannot be understood apart from what takes place in the temple. And William Lane gives us a very helpful summary. He says, in this context... The fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day, and what happens to the fig tree symbolizes the terrible fate that inevitably awaited Jerusalem. Just as the leaves of the fig tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and all of its ceremonies conceal the fact that Israel has not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. Both incidents have the character of a prophetic sign which warns of judgment to fall on Israel for honoring God with their lips while their hearts are far from Him. End quote. So the fig tree 
being all leaf and no fruit and coming under Christ's judgment is simply an enacted parable pointing to the greater spiritual reality that is Jerusalem. Now as Jesus enters the temple, we see, we see dead religion in action. Here we see dead religion on the hoof. Here we see, here we see religion that's all leaf and no fruit in practice. Let's take note of what we see. In the first place, as we, we look at what's going on in the temple, we see, we see busyness rather than worship. Okay, the temple in these verses is an absolute zoo, isn't it? People are buying and selling. People are carrying merchandise through the temple courts, Mark says. The ancient historian Josephus estimates that, that upwards of 255,000 animals would be sacrificed in Jerusalem, in the temple, during this one week of Passover. If you consider one animal accounted for every 10 people, then we're talking about 2.5 million people being in Jerusalem during this week, and most all of those people would have found their way into the temple courts at some point during the week. So this is a chaotic scene. This is a busy scene. Uh, many commentators who I read this week, they compared this scene to, to the scene on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, all right? Combine that with livestock? <laughs> crazy. Yet all this busyness and all this religious activity has replaced what? It's replaced prayer, Jesus says. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. All this busyness, all this activity, it's replaced prayer and it's replaced the true heartfelt worship and devotion to the Lord. A pastor friend of mine was recently told by a member in his church that the church down the road from them was in the midst of a great revival. And my pastor friend said, well, what makes you say that? Tell me more. And the person started listing off all the stuff that this church began to do recently. He said, well, they got, they got a new Wednesday night kids program started. And they got a mom's Bible study going. And, and they're doing kids hope. And they're raising money for, for a building project. And they just hired a new worship coordinator. And they're adding a second service. And they're having these fellowship dinners. And on and on and on he went. And my pastor friend realized that the reason, the reason this person from his church concluded that the church down the road was in the midst of revival was because the church down the road had made themselves incredibly busy with religious activity. Now, it may be, it may be that the church down the road is undergoing a revival. We hope and pray they are. But let's be careful not to equate busyness with godliness. Let's be careful not to equate religious activity with, with the love of God. Sometimes our busyness and all the stuff we, we, we do, you know, that we call religious activity, it's nothing more than leaves which cover a heart that is not devoted to the Lord. In the second place here, we see, we see ir irreverence rather than reverence. Irreverence rather than reverence. The temple was holy. 
The temple was a place where God had, had established to, to meet with his people. It was to be a place of worship and reverence and awe and wonder. Yet here it is, it is being desecrated. It's being used for common purposes. The buying and the selling of goods. Travel. Right? You see that, that people are, are carrying things uh, through, through the temple. That's uh, verse 16. People are carrying merchandise through the temple. And we were talking about this in our Bible study on Thursday afternoon. Um, the temple at this time, thanks to Herod and to the investments he made in the temple, the temple was huge. And the temple courts took up nearly 35 acres on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It was It was huge. And because it was so huge, the outer courts of the temple became a sort of thoroughfare from people traveling to and from the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. Rather than going around the temple, the people, oh, it's quicker for us just to, just to go through the temple. And they would just walk through the temple, carrying their merchandise through the temple. The temple had become common. And this is what happens when religion is dead. Dead religion treats lightly and commonly that which God has set apart as holy. Now maybe, maybe our minds this morning are going, they're going right to this, this church building. And we think, oh, you know, the booster club shouldn't be selling pizzas in this church building. Or those kids, they shouldn't be running around in this church building. We need to understand that this church building is not the equivalent of the temple. This building is not the equivalent of the temple. Now you know what the Bible equates to the temple? The body. The believer's body, right? The Christian's body. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. You get it? Maybe we don't make this connection often enough, but when we, as spirit-filled believers, abuse our bodies, whether it's through smoke or drink or drugs or sexual immorality or, or gluttony or laziness, or when we abuse the, the body of another, whether it's through physical acts of violence or through our words or through neglect, like we are like these people in the temple who are desecrating rather than honoring the holy. Of course, that's not the only thing that God has called holy still today, is it? His name is holy. His Sabbath day is holy. His word is holy. The Lord's Supper is holy. But dead religion treats lightly that which God has called holy. What else do we see here in this scene? We look at dead religion in action. What else do we see? Well, well we, see, we see exploitation rather than service. To see this, we need to understand how things worked during the Passover. We read here again about people buying and selling. Uh, there was a lot of that going on in the temple at this time. Each family was required to present an offering at the feast, and the offering had to be without blemish. And to ensure that the offering would be without blemish, the priests had to inspect every animal that a family brought 
for the sacrifice. So you bring a lamb with you from um, Nazareth, and you bring it to the temple, and the priests have to look it over. And if there's a blemish on it, you can't use it. Alternatively, the priests were, were wizards. Alternatively, uh, the priests had their own stock of, of already approved animals for sale at the temple. It was a nice alternative, right? Because then, then pilgrims did not have to travel all that distance with their, with, their, with their sheep or their goat or their dove. And they didn't have to worry about their animal not passing inspection. Right? It, was, it was a really good deal, a good, a good thing. But here's the problem. Buying an animal for sacrifice at the temple was like buying a hot dog at Comerica Park. These animals were often sold for four, five, six, seven times what they could have been bought for otherwise. This was, a, this was a lucrative business for the priests in Jerusalem. And one commentator says this, there is plenty of early evidence in the ancient Jewish writings to show that the priests benefited significantly from this practice. Not only that, but the, but the temple tax of, of half a shekel it had to be paid by each family in Jewish coin. Most of the people came to the temple carrying Greek or Roman or Egyptian currency, and then they had to exchange it for Jewish currency because Jewish currency was the only currency accepted in the temple. And you can bet what happened. The money exchangers charged a massive fee to exchange currency from, you know, foreign currency to Jewish currency. I remember when we got off the airplane in the Dominican Republic a few years ago, there was a booth in the airport to exchange currency, and all of us Americans had our American currency. We need Dominican currency, and Ezekiel said to us, do not exchange your currency at that booth, because you will get a way better exchange rate outside of the airport. That's, that's the sort of thing that, that is going on here. Only these people couldn't go outside the airport. They did not have another option. There's also the note here about selling doves. We ought not miss that either. There was, there was a provision in Leviticus uh, made for the poor. And in Leviticus 12, we read that if a person cannot afford a lamb for the sacrifice, she can offer doves or pigeons. And so the sense you get here as you, as you read this is that, that it's, it's really the poor, the poor who are being taken advantage of here in the temple. In fact, in fact that, might be, that might be why Mark notes Jesus overturning this particular table. It's unlikely that Jesus overturned every table in the 35-acre temple courtyard, but he did overturn this one. And perhaps the exploitation of the poor that was taking place on this table was the reason. Anyway, this whole, this whole scene reeks of exploitation. The Jews in Jerusalem, and even more specifically the priests at the temple, there were thousands of them, the priests, the priests are taking advantage of their fellow man. They're taking advantage of the people of God. They were, as Jesus says, robbers, and the temple was their den. Never mind those people hiding out in the mountains outside of Jericho. The robbers are right here in the temple, Jesus says. As I saw this, I was, I was reminded of a man. He moved to a new area. 
he began attending a new church. And he attended this church with his family for a couple weeks, and someone in the church invited him and his family over for dinner. And, and, and they were so excited. They'd moved to this new area. They were so excited to begin building some relationships with fellow believers in this area. They were so excited to go for dinner at these people's house. And, and they went for dinner at their people's house, at these people's house. And their host spent the whole time trying to sell them a product. And we know how those things work in this day, those multi-level marketing things. Some of you are involved with them, and that's, that's totally fine, but that's what this was. And, and they spent the, the whole time trying to sell their guest on their product. And this man, he said to his pastor, we were so excited to go there for dinner, so excited to begin building relationships, but we left feeling exploited. We left feeling used. Dead religion in action. It exploits rather than serves. It looks at the people of God and says, you are here for me and not, and not I am here for you. What else do we see here in this scene? Well, we see, we see exclusion rather than hospitality. We must know that, that all, of this, all of this madness, it's taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The temple was made up of four courts. The court of the Gentiles was the outermost court, and, and this was as far as the Gentiles could go into the temple. The next court in was called the court of women, and this was as far in as Jewish women could go into the temple. The next court in was called the court of Israel. This was as far as Jewish men could go. And then the innermost court was the, the priest's court, and this is as far in as the priest could go. And then, of course, within the priest's court, there was the Holy of Holies, uh, which is where the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. But all of this, all of this fanfare, all of this madness, all of this chaos is happening in the outermost court. It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. And it's the Gentiles, then, who are really, really being affected here. Jesus makes that clear when he says, my house will be a house of prayer for who? For the Jews. No, he says, for all nations. That phrase makes it clear that, that the nations, the Gentiles, the outsiders are the ones, the ones being most affected in all this. They are the ones who are being prohibited from worshiping God by all the buying and selling and traveling that's taking place in the temple. And it's hard to believe this is, this is unintentional. It's hard to believe any of the Jews could have said, whoops, we didn't, didn't realize that that was happening, didn't realize we were having that effect. No, the, the first century Jews in Jerusalem did not think much of the Gentiles. That's evident if you read through the book of Acts. It's evident even when Jesus eats with Gentiles and he's called out for it. But the writings of this, of this time period show that, that the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would, he would cleanse the temple of Gentiles. He would drive the Gentiles out of the temple. That's, that's what they thought. That's what they wanted. What does Jesus do here in reality? He cleanses the temple for the Gentiles. He gives them a place for worship. But the point is this. The priests here and the people in Jerusalem here, they are doing their best to exclude the Gentiles. They are not welcoming them to the temple for Passover with open arms. They are not showing them hospitality and hoping that they have a blessed week of Passover in Jerusalem. No, they are doing their best 
to make sure that these Gentiles never, ever, ever want to come back. Dead religion in action. People who are all leaf and no fruit exclude those whom God calls them to welcome. We might think of how we do it here without even, without even realizing it, right? Someone comes in, they look different than us. Rather than welcoming them, rather than introducing ourselves, we go and huddle up with our friends and family after church in the corner. Do our best to make sure they, they never want to come back. What else do we see here? We see hardness rather than humility. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You know, the, uh, the teachers of the law did not have to respond this way. They did not have to harden their hearts against Jesus. No, they, they could have humbled themselves right here, and they could have said, you're right, Jesus. We've, we've, we've lost our way. We've been sinning against the Lord. Have mercy on us. They could have done that. They do not do that. Dead faith in action. You know a person's faith is dead when they say they love God, but then when God's word confronts them and exposes their sin, they do not humble themselves and ask for forgiveness and repent. No, they harden themselves and they persist in their rebellion and by doing so show that they do not love God. Never mind what they say. They show that they do not love God. And that's what this whole episode boils down to. The busyness rather than the devotion, the irreverence rather than the reverence, the hardening rather than the humbling. What does it show about these people in the temple? It shows they don't love God. They don't. And the exploitation and the exclusion, it shows what? It shows they don't love their neighbor either. All the leaves of their magnificent temple and busy religious traditions, and high and holy talk, all the fasting twice a week, and giving a tenth I get, and look at me, language coming out of their mouth, cannot hide what is underneath. Nothing. No righteousness, no holiness, no godliness, no humility, no love, nothing. You are whitewashed tombs, Jesus says in another place. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of nothing but dead men's bones. There's none of the fruit that God requires. I want to close this morning with an observation, a reminder, and a question really quickly. First, an observation. Jesus hates dead religion. He hates it. This isn't something he laughs off. This isn't something he winks at. This isn't something he ignores altogether. No, this is something that causes the Lord of glory to overturn tables. He hates dead religion. Do you want to experience some of the wrath of the Lamb? Honor him with your lips and deny him with your actions. That'll be the quickest way to do it. Second, a reminder the fruit, the fruit that God requires from all of us, the fruits of righteousness and the fruits of holiness and the fruits of godliness, 
the fruits of repentance, the, the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of love of God and love of, love of neighbor. Those fruits are produced within us by Christ himself. The one who is in Christ by faith will produce fruit. And the one who does not produce fruit shows he or she is not in Christ. That's how this works. You see it in John 15. I'll just read John 15 verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. He will. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The point is, we are saved by faith alone, gloriously so, but as we often say, the faith that saves is never alone. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ works. The one who, the one who truly trusts in Christ is their Savior and looks to Him continually for grace and mercy and guidance and direction will bear fruit that is pleasing to God. That doesn't mean sin is Absent, sin always remains within us, always. But there will be some fruit that pleases God, righteousness, holiness, and the like. And that leads to a question. Underneath the leaves of your church attendance and the honoring of Jesus with your lips, and maybe you're sharing all the right things on Facebook and whatever else any one of us does that makes us look godly from afar, is there fruit that is pleasing to God? Is there, underneath those leaves of religious practice, a true love for God and your neighbor? Is there a true trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Is there a true, true humility before God's Word? You know, it is very possible that God's Word confronted you this morning. It confronted me in my study this week. That's okay. God's Word confronts all of us. The question is, how will you respond to it? Will you bear fruit in keeping with repentance and humble yourself under God's Word and confess your sin and look to Jesus for mercy? Will you perhaps say, yes, Lord, yes, I have been a practitioner of dead religion. I have. Forgive me for my sins and help me bear fruit that is pleasing to you. Or will you harden your heart and brush it off and try to convince yourself that you're okay? Are you, are you, are you bearing fruit that is pleasing to God? Is there within your heart, underneath the leaves that all of us see even this morning, is there true love for God and your neighbor? If there is, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ and praise Him. He is the vine in whom we bear fruit. But if not, there's no better words for you today than the words of Jesus Himself. First to the church of Sardis, now to you. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have heard, received, and obey it, and repent. 
But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I come to you. Dear friends, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's pray. Lord God, all of us this morning are guilty of practicing dead religion. We're guilty of going through the motions. We're guilty of putting on a show while having very little to nothing within us of love for you and our neighbor. Forgive us for our sins. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours at the cross. Thank you for Jesus, by whose death and in whose death we live. Help us to live and help us to practice true religion for your name's honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. To all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and who have a firm true faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. For the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. While remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united with the reality they signify that we do not doubt but joyfully believe that we receive in this meal by the Spirit through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord. For all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, this holy food and drink will only bring you further condemnation. If you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under His gracious reign, we ask you this morning to abstain from taking the elements when they're passed by you. Just let them go by and reflect on God's love for you in Christ. That said, all who repent and believe Not all who are sinless, this meal is for sinners. All who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal. Not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures. In order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the Word has promised us God's favor in Christ, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, 
who by the blood of your only begotten Son has secured for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies. Cleanse our minds and hearts by your word and spirit, that we, your redeemed people, drawing close to you through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ our Savior. We know that our ascended Savior does not live in temples made by hands, but is in heaven, where he continues to intercede on our behalf. Through this sacrament, by your own word and spirit, may these common elements now be set apart from ordinary use and consecrated by you, so that just as truly as we eat and drink these elements by which our bodily life is sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and blood of Christ. We receive these gifts by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, let us now go to our heavenly table and receive the gift of God for our souls. By the promise of God, this bread and this cup are for us the body and blood of Christ. The elders may come forward. Dear friends, on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And before his disciples, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Beloved, the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. In the same way that night, Jesus took the cup and pouring it out, he said, this cup is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As the elders are passing the juice, uh, we're going to sing a song called Christ Surrendered All, which we've never sang before. The tune is I Surrender All. We learned this on Sunday night a while back, and we Certainly remember when we take communion that our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in Christ. He surrendered all for us.
friends, Christ surrendered all. For a fruitless fig tree like me, that's good news. I don't know about you. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this holy feast. Although we are unworthy to share this meal with you, it is by your invitation and dressed in Christ's righteousness that we have come boldly into the Holy of Holies. Instead of wrath, we have received your pardon. In the place of fear, we have been given hope. Our high priest and mediator of the new covenant has reconciled us to you and even now intercedes for us at your right hand. Please strengthen us by these gifts so that relying on your promise to save sinners who call on Jesus' name, we may by your spirit honor you with our souls and bodies to the honor and glory of your holy name. And now we pray together the prayer that you've taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand for the parting blessing. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen.